Crossings podcast community. This week's teaching is part three of three in our series called My Most Important Question. It was taught by Rebecca O'Malley, Lauren Green, and Eric Anderson on June 25th, 2023. Before beginning this week's podcast, we do want to mention that this teaching involves discussions of suicide, alcoholism, and sexuality. Thank you for listening. Good morning. How are you? Good to see you all. Thanks for being here. Um, if you find yourself keep being distracted by those gold streamers hanging down, it's fine. That means you're normal. Um, thanks for being here. So like Caleb said, we are in the middle of probably one of the most abnormal things that we do on Sundays, uh, something called my most important question, where we ask people in our community, uh, this will be the third week of this, um, to get up here and in seven minutes with seven slides share their most important question of life and faith and God. Um, This is something that we do as a practice of authenticity. Some of these questions have answers. Uh, Some very much don't have answers. Um, But we do this also because it's a practice of curiosity. It's a practice of the way faith is often about asking better questions than finding better answers and journeying through those questions in community. So this is the last week of this. Next week, our friend Rabbi Alam Ferenczi is going to be with us to talk about um, creativity and spirituality. But both next week and this week, I think, are practices um, that are so much more than just the information that is shared. This is a real and tangible practice for all of us. Uh, And the practice is this. Raphael and I were talking about this through the week. It's a practice of hospitality. And to practice holding space and creating space for one another and their stories, to ask their big questions um, about life and faith and God. There's a priest and theologian, Henry Nouwen, that says this, hospitality means primarily the creation of free space where the stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. Hospitality is not to change people, but offer them space where change can take place. It is not to bring men and women over to our side, but to offer freedom, not disturbed by dividing lines. And then he says this, he says, the church is perhaps one of the few places left where we can meet people who are different than we are, but with whom we can form a larger family. See, if you think about the act of hospitality, True and genuine and radical hospitality often happens and is often the most beautiful when we are creating space and making comfortable someone who makes us uncomfortable. So if someone shares something during these MMIQs in weeks past or today that makes you uncomfortable, things that you don't like, things that you disagree with, things that you've never even considered before, That's what this is. This is about us creating a free space to hold this space for one another. Like Nouwen said, maybe even the church can continue to be one of the last places on earth um, where we can hold this tension, where things won't continue to divide us. So thank you for making space this morning for the people in our community to share. Uh, as a way to like honor and acknowledge everyone who's shared, we're going to clap at the end. It also makes the transitions less awkward. So we'll just do that. Um, so please welcome this morning Rebecca and Lauren and Eric, and then afterwards Thomas is going to share uh, one of his um, 
questions, songs, I'll let him talk about it. Okay, Rebecca. Good morning. Um, my name is Rebecca O'Malley, and my husband Michael and I normally attend the North Gatherings at Chris and Barry, so I'm happy to be here with you all this morning. So is this slide a throwback for anyone in this room? Okay, great. When I was a kid, I loved Seventh Heaven. And one thing that was always really baffling to my dad, but always seemed really cool to me, was they always had people living in their home who weren't their family. Friends would need a place to stay for a time and always landed there. And I, I think I would honestly thrive in a commune as long as there are no abuses of power, no patriarchal hierarchies, and no expectation to farm in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> so if you hear one of those, just let me know. So in 2016, my husband Michael and I were looking for our first home. And while we were searching, a friend of ours was pregnant and was trying to figure out her next living situation. And we knew we wanted to buy a home we could grow in and asked her if she and her baby would want to move in with us since we would have a space that was bigger than what we needed. So that same year, we bought our first home in a neighborhood that has, during our time living there, gentrified before our eyes in such a way that if we were buying today, we could not afford to live there. And at the same time, we bought this house before the housing market escalated into what it is today. So that led me to my question, how do I practice the rhythms and ways of Jesus and how I use my home, an asset that is becoming increasingly unattainable for so many? And that friend and her baby stayed with us for four beautiful years, and it became part of our normal, normal pattern and is something I would do over again in a heartbeat. I became a godmother, and I gained a new best friend. I learned a lot about parenting before I had a child of my own. And as our family began to grow, we felt we were quickly running out of room, and we had the resources to finish out our basement. And right as the work was well underway, our friend was able to buy her own home. So then we were left with a three-bedroom house and a beautiful separate living space with only three people in our home. And I felt an overwhelming pressure that we had more than what we needed. And as soon as we had that resource, the needs came flooding in. Friends whose pipes had burst, then a friend needing to quarantine from her family during COVID, a friend going through a divorce, a friend in a bad roommate situation between leases, a friend of a friend who needed a place for the summer before she had housing again, a refugee sent to us by bridge who needed temporary housing, and most recently, a coworker of our original housemate who found out that coworker was living out of her car. And just as soon as we had gotten into a rhythm with our basement, Bridge called. They knew our basement was occupied, but they had a Haitian family who showed up on their doorstep and needed housing. And they asked if they could use our guest room through the weekend. We said yes, and the following Monday or Tuesday, they called back to say that the wait list to get into their program is two months long, which they did not know originally. That call came three months ago. And if I told you that over the last few months, my husband and I have not fought over the lack of time, space, and energy we are both experiencing, I would be lying. And if I told you I haven't gotten so overwhelmed at the needs around me that I haven't asked out loud, if I died, would people miss me or just the things I did for them, I would be lying. But if I told you we were doing these things all by ourselves, I would also be lying. Bridge, while not able to fully enroll this family in their program, did ensure this family had food stamps and health insurance and has been available for every frustrated call or email I send when another roadblock stops us from helping this family make any headway. 
This is in no way a critique of them or their work, which is nothing short of phenomenal. Lindsay and Ryan Foran and our small group have employed this family, taken them to work, given them hand-me-down clothes, and have been ours and this family's strongest support system in this time. We have been able to connect this family to the church of their denomination, and they filled our home with food before their food stamps arrived and have given them a greater sense of community in an otherwise very lonely place. And all of this, the frustrations with the hoops we have to jump through to try and help this family make a sustainable home here, the overwhelm at the kindness of others, and the loving nature of this family in my home has led me to the conclusion that if I see these people in our space as a burden, they will always be a burden. But if I stand in solidarity, if I see them as friends, peers, blessings, that is where I find my joy. I find Domino's partners with a game that no one else in my house will play with me. I watch my children learn new cultures, foods, and languages. And I begin to see the body of Christ in all its beauty and pain and trauma and inconvenience bring heaven to earth. I have seen the faith of a mustard seed thrive in the eyes of my hopeful housemates who are not yet hardened by the world, though they've seen the darkest parts of it, who are not discouraged when they are told that yet again they don't qualify for a service, who are not dismayed when I tell them we still have no word or timeline on permanent housing for them. And just yesterday, my first housemate that I mentioned and I were talking about those early days of living with us, and one thing that she mentioned was how we would hold her baby every night while she showered. And what I did not know then was that was the time she felt whatever hard, ugly emotions she needed to in that moment. And it was also the brightest part of my day because I was playing with a beautiful baby. And I think there's something to say about joy and sorrow doing an intricate dance when we carry each other's burdens. And I have bigger dreams for how we build bigger tables when we have more than what we need. I dream of people paying off their homes and then using that money from their former house payment to help someone else become a homeowner. I dream of creating a network of spaces around Knoxville where people share their homes in a way that restores dignity to the unhoused and that radically changes our perception of who the unhoused are and who they could be. So how do we follow this revolutionary call of Jesus to give away all of our possessions to those in need? I think it starts with us sharing them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Lauren. Um, a lot of new faces here that I haven't seen before. I'm normally at the Chris and Barry gathering, but it's nice to be here with y'all today. Um, when I was growing up in Georgia, every year we would drive a few hours away to my Aunt Judy's house, and um, eventually we'd all sit down together to eat, and we'd just sit at this really long table, which was actually three tables, um, because it was the dining room table with its leaves folded out, and then it was a plastic fold-out table, and at the end, like a little square card table that would run right up until the wall. And it was just packed, but we would make it work and we would just kind of cram in there and it always felt so just together. And I always really felt like I belonged to something during that time. Um, my most important question today that I'm gonna talk about is do I really belong? Um, I grew up in a really close-knit extended family. Um, we were very entrenched in Baptist church culture, very like pretty fundamental Baptist church culture. Um, my father was a Baptist pastor. His father was a Baptist pastor. Between both sides of my family, five uncles were Baptist pastors. So 
everything was church, right? Um, everything kind of revolved around that. My friends, my family, um, all my schedule and routine, that was just our life. And I really loved it growing up. Um, I was like in it, gung-ho, this, you know, this was the way kind of a thing. And it was beautiful, um, something about it, being kind of under the banner of love and protection that we experienced. Um, in that place, I always felt like I belonged. I always felt accepted. Um, and for undergrad, I went off to a tiny Baptist college in Wisconsin, and I continued to really thrive in that world. Um, but then after I graduated and a couple years after working at that college, I came out as gay. And I, I think probably some of you can imagine that that kind of changed the equation a little bit. Um, and really in an instant, everything shifted. Like everything that had been mine, everything I belonged to, everything that I loved about how I did my life just changed. It wasn't mine anymore. Um, I just didn't belong. And I spent really the first few years um, after that trying so hard to figure out how to get back to that table. Um, like how could I convince them that I was the same person, that nothing had changed, um, that, and just how could I be back a part of that under the banner of what felt like love and protection. Um, and I would have given anything to be back there, like at that table with my knees bumping up against the bottom of the kids' table because I didn't fit anymore. You know, that was everything I wanted. Um, but eventually, I, I kind of came to terms with the fact that that was not going to happen. I was not going to be included at that table. Um, and so I started searching for new places of belonging, new friends, um, new faith communities, and what felt like entirely new worlds. And I could talk more today about just my search for belonging, how I found belonging, the ways in which I still sometimes do not feel like I belong, but that's not really like the main point I have today. Um, a lot of, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Ultimately, I found this question important because of how it continues to change me. Um, Jeffrey Cohen, a professor at Stanford who's done research on the science of belonging, said in an interview about his book, I think that you really start to appreciate the importance of a sense of belonging when it's taken away. And losing that sense of belonging opened up my eyes so I could see other people more clearly. Um, I'm a therapist, so I work with all different kind of, kinds of people, um, conservatives, leftists, people who look and talk and think very differently than me and from each other. But I've never worked with anyone who did not experience an inherent need for belonging. Um, I think everyone at the end of the day wants to be a part of a table where they're not scared of being excluded if they show up and say who they really are. I was so immersed in that culture, though, of exclusion that I, was, I wasn't seeing anyone around me. I was never lifting up my eyes to notice other people who were being excluded. And I'm not saying in any sense that I'm like glad that my community and family had a problem with me being queer, because I'm not. Um, but I don't think without that experience, I would have actually noticed other people who were being excluded too. And being forced to ask, do I really belong, has made me look around and see others who got excluded. And I've realized that as much as I, the question, do I belong, has caused me pain, I also have come to realize I've also caused that pain to other people by making them ask if they really belong. I've excluded other people because of skin color, disability, their accent, transness, education level, and the list could go on. I've also excluded people just out of rudeness and selfishness and inconvenience. 
Um, David Monina Singe, in his book, Radical Inclusion, starts his author's note by saying, you are not included. I picked up the book, and that was the first thing. It was just like, you are not included. And I was like, okay. Um, so, um, and he says, no matter what your economic status, your social capital, your race, or your position may be, you're likely to face exclusion at some point in your life. Um, I imagine pretty much everyone in here has been excluded at some point, and I also think probably all of us have been part of excluding someone else as well. Um, one thing Monina Singe says is that the inclusion-exclusion um, border is fluid. In other words, we've all been on both sides of this thing. Um, one thing he, uh, Monina Singe talks about in his book, and this is something I'm understanding more and more in my own life, is that exclusion hurts us all. Um, whether we're being excluded or doing the excluding, it just causes pain, it causes harm, it causes us to be fractured in some way. And excluders miss out on everything the excluded could have brought to the table, and I really have come to believe that when we're excluding someone made in the image of God, we're, we're somehow missing out on God himself in fullness. I am thankful to have found spaces where I know I belong. I could talk a long time, and that's not what today is for, just about how important Crossings has been to me, that I belong here, that I don't have to sit at the kids' table. I, that has been such a meaningful thing in my life. Um, but I, and I also appreciate that I'm going to continue to have opportunities to include other people, but I think I know I'll probably be on both sides of exclusion for the rest of my life, and that's just something I'll have to work on and be aware of. Um, I have a lot of questions about faith and God, like I think probably most of the people in this room, um, but one thing I do feel a lot of confidence in is that Jesus would have us seek belonging, not just for ourselves, but for other people too. Um, you know, the God that's the author of infinite diversity, the God that made a point of seeking people on the margins of society, um, the God that came to earth in human flesh to be among us. Um, I really do believe that that God um, would really intend belonging for all of us. Good morning. Uh, my name is Eric Anderson. My wife and I have been attending crossings for about four years this summer. This is my wife, Christy. Say hi. I will say at the start that uh, to ask somebody who loves words to talk about the biggest questions in seven minutes is a tall order, so bear with me. It's a sunny day in second grade, and I'm on the way home about to emerge from the path from school onto my block. Someone, I can't remember who, meets me and tells me an ambulance is out in front of my house. The scene is a mix of calm and chaos. I get home and next door, uh, next door in the driveway is the body of my neighbor, Mrs. Levine. Entirely covered by gray blanket, she has committed suicide by closing the doors to the garage and turning on the car. She is alone and unattended in the drive. The scene rotates around her. A few years ago, I discovered that my dad was the one to pull her out of the car, carrying her from the, from the garage onto the drive. Susie, one of the children, is in the front yard across the street, wailing and inconsolable in the grass, first responders surrounding her. I walk in the house and go upstairs to my room and find more uniforms and the twin Levine boys, Luke and Andre. Voices and crying I hear, but I can't make out the words in my memory. There is an older brother guy. I can't place him at the scene. 
A year after Mrs. Levine's suicide, my parents would be divorced. For years, I worried that my mother would take her own life. I never spoke to her about it, perhaps not wanting the words in that sentence to be spoke out loud. My mother would marry and divorce again in my middle school years, adding to the worries about her future and ours. My father became distant and remote and every other weekend kind of dad coming to sporting events as I grew up, but never substantively involved in my life in a meaningful way. I wrote parts of this narrative while in counseling during a dark season of my life. The therapist suggested that in addition to Mrs. Levine, I was the one in the scene alone and unattended on the drive. I believe I made agreements during this time of suicide and divorce. I must be vigilant and watch, please, and care for my mother to avoid this possibility. And secondly, I'm on my own. I've got to make my own way, though I'm unsure if I have what it takes. So these are the questions that have played in my imagination, the ones that have rung in my ears through the years. Who am I? How did I get here? Where am I headed? Are you there, God? And do I need you? I have found insight into the last two questions, are you there, God? And do I need you in looking at the way that I'm wired? Many of you may be familiar with the Enneagram. It's a personality profiling model or system popular in some Christian circles. Shown here are the nine types. I'm a two. A two is wired to be a servant and a helper. The thing I like most about the Enneagram model is that it helps you understand your primary character flaw, where you are more prone to fail and fall. The root sin of a two is their pride. The mission of a two is to help and serve others. When a two is in an unhealthy place, they don't recognize or acknowledge their own need. So they don't need others and they don't need God. So as a note, um, as the mother of all sins, pride's a bad one to be afflicted with. Um, I'll read from Richard Rohr's take on twos. He says, the root of this is parentization in childhood. In other words, the role reversal of parents and children. For example, in the previous story, feeling like I had to care for my mother in a way during the season of suicide and divorce. Twos must work hard, he says, to install an objective inner observer to stand up to their own natural subjectivism. Twos also have a difficult time building up a heartfelt relationship with God. At bottom, they don't need God, said a young theologian who is a two. We twos are practical atheists. Only when we are sick, ruined, and lying in a bed with a breakdown can we really pray from the heart, Lord, have mercy on me. Sick, ruined, and lying in a bed is coming on the next slide. Another way I've looked at answering the questions is looking at the narrative of my life. Narrative is a sense-making device. Mapped here are the significant events that changed the course of my life. Gates walked through with no way back. I left home, Colorado, and moved to Chicago when I was 18. I went back but never returned, if that makes sense. It was an emancipation. The still small voice whispered, and I needed to go. I graduated from college, joined a church, married, had two kids, got a dog, 
From 1985 until 2000, I was on cruise control. I was not fully aware then, but unresolved issues ran parts of my show underground. Within two years, I almost died, had a massive pulmonary embolism, my first of two. My daughter, Emily, was born. My father-in-law died after battling cancer, and my wife plunged into a long depression. This is the point where I'm literally lying in intensive care, saying, Lord, have mercy on me. The days from 2003 to 2016 were just hard. I was lonely, angry, and depressed, suffering in a decaying terminal and finally dead marriage. I made horrible, harmful choices. After all, good Christian church people don't get divorced. You just stick it out. This is also the season when my inner witness started flickering a bit more. I'm typically in the slow group, just ask Christy. Uh, Fortunately, in God's mercy, I ended up in group therapy in the context of a spiritual discovery project. It wasn't until life wasn't working for me anymore that I started entertaining my need for God in earnest. One of my earliest memories from childhood is my dad reading the Hardy Boys books to me when my parents were still together. He wrote sports for the Denver Post and later became the book editor there. So books have been a preeminent architectural feature in my life, reading, providing the machinery and framing to stand up my days. Read in order to live, said Gustave Flaubert in a letter in 1857. I agree. Books have been my companions in this life, people too, as a person is a living, breathing, tingling text. But again, the default in my operating system is I don't have needs. I don't need you, and I don't need God necessarily. In books and in my friendships with others, these are the places I've searched for answers to life's big questions. My father gave me the love for books. St. Augustine helped me think about the search for God and the understanding of myself and how they are related. Books have helped me point me in the direction of answers. In book 10 of Confessions, on memory, uh, Augustine locates God, not in some distant, far-off locale, but in his own memory. Dennis Turner talking about Augustine. Let's take a poll. Augustine or Augustine? Uh, Augustine, thank you. Augustine came to see that these two pursuits, the search for God and the search for himself, were in fact the same search, that to find God was possible only in and through the discovery of the self, and that the self, his self, was discoverable only there where God was to be found, and that that place, both where he, Augustine, and God were to be found was in the depths of his own interiority. For Augustine, God, self, and interiority all point to one and the same place. These questions still surface for me. Are you there, God? Do I need you? And likely always will. I must apologize for the yellow sweater and plaid pants. I'm a bit surprised the collar isn't turned up. Uh, This grainy picture is from 1986. Suzanne was a friend in college. She married Steve Guy, another friend, just after graduation. Steve and Suzanne lived in Columbus, Ohio, the parents of two boys. Steve, a successful psychiatrist, and Suzanne, involved in so much. 
Raising her boys, volunteer work, she was a gourmet chef, the consummate entertainer, smart, funny, and loud. You always heard Suzanne before you saw her. Through the years, I had news of trouble in their marriage. Believe me, I had empathy for both, having suffered in mine for so long. She died on a Tuesday morning several weeks ago after countless interventions and over many years, she ended up drinking herself to organ failure, which feels to me like such a lonely, angry, desperate, and longing kind of death a slow, painful suicide. The news hit me really hard on a bunch of levels. Sometime the week I found out, <clears throat> I had to drive back and forth from Chattanooga for work. Early in my drive, a song came up on the playlist, you will be saved by elevation worship. Crying big tears, I listened to it in a loop all the way down and back. Everybody needs saving. Everybody breaks. Everybody bleeds. But you don't have to be ashamed. The Savior is a breath away. As simple as that. Don't overthink. Don't complicate it. No strings attached. He loves you. He loves you. Call on Jesus. Say his name. Just receive him in your heart and you will be saved. While saving grace and mercy is a, just a breath away, and as simple as that may seem, she couldn't do it. It's that easy and so very hard at the same time. She couldn't surrender. She couldn't say the words, I need help. I need you. Save me. So to my two questions, are you there, God? Yes, I believe is the answer. And do I still need you? Yes. And admitting my need is still not always easy. The new question for me is how to live so that my way of being in the world expresses this need day to day in the moments. So a couple of years ago, um, two months into the pandemic, um, the majority of the world was in sort of a shutdown. And there was a statement released that all of this will go away by Easter and we will return back to normal. And my frustration from that came not just because of the timeline that was presented that was not based in... Uh, any sort of research, um, but also that the normal that was being referenced did not seem like a normal worth returning to, much less worth pursuing in the first place. I am fortunate that I did not lose any family or a job during the pandemic, um, but in a time of immense hurt and loss and stress, how could I respond to the question, how are things? with anything but everything's fine when looking at the world nothing was all right um so that led me to uh, 
writing this song with my wife, Amanda. Um, we worked on this together and it, it kind of works through the question of how do we pursue restoration and healing when elected leaders are more prone to offer thoughts and prayers instead of legislative action? How do we offer hope when what the world sees is a misquote of the King James Version reduced to a one-liner that's on a t-shirt that's branded as Christianity? How do we offer belonging to Lauren's question when these spaces that are supposed to be welcoming have a history of being exclusionary? Silver dollar and a white cotton dress Easter morning in your best Sunday best forgiven once more so we can go back to normal again with our boiling blood and clenching the fists putting country in front of our kin while you cut the lights and call it a night we're in the dark Wondering where to begin Everything's fine Everything's fine, I swear Everything is fine But nothing is took out of context and put on that t-shirt to prove to ourselves that we knew what we were talking about Cause God forbid we have Nothing is 
joyful, joyful, we tried singing. But the hate inside our hearts made it hard to love our brothers. We held our sisters to impossible heights. So raise a glass to one another for all the thoughts and prayers you Pawning off these hurting mothers to not offend the hands that pay. So joyful, joyful, we'll keep singing till love overcomes disregard and these hungry mouths and disenchanted hear the words you actually said like blessed are the meek and merciful and open tables to those with all pursuing some belonging can finally lay their head to rest. So in a book, uh, it's actually a letter uh, that Paul wrote to the Romans after painting a picture for them of where the world was, how bleak things had become, uh, Paul gave the early church uh, examples of the way uh, in light of God's grace, in light of God's mercy, how the Christians might pursue life together um, and life with those outside of the community. He says this, let love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lack in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in affliction. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Pursue hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be arrogant, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. It is if it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So the space you've given each other this morning, 
um, and the space you give each other and your neighbors and the people around you every day. This is how we practice this story of God thing. This is um, how we practice becoming a people who live out a story of hope and restoration. Um, we do that practically, tangibly every week by coming to a table together. Uh, Jesus gathered his friends around a table the night he, before they betrayed him. Um, broke bread, poured wine, his body and his blood given for you, for them, um, for all that is broken in the world. And we continue to do that to get together today because Jesus reminded them that as long as they keep doing this together, he would be with them. It would be a way that they would participate, a way we would continue to participate in the story of God, a story of creation and recreation, of restoration and life and freedom that is possible and available again and again and again. So if you'd like, we invite you to this table. Uh, we have gluten-free crackers if you don't want the bread, and we have grape juice if you don't want the wine, just let us know. Um, but whenever you're ready, we invite you to this table. <laughs>